this morning. Our scripture is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, welcome, welcome, welcome to worship this morning. It's so great to have you all and see all your faces. Thank you so much. We get to meet the Lord in community, and I think that's amazing. In a time when we can meet the Lord in podcasts and all kinds of other ways, he asks us to gather together in the flesh. And I don't know, it sends shivers up my spine because we're in a culture where more and more that seems unnecessary. And it's not until you get in the presence of other people that it electrifies you and you realize what it is God has intended the whole time when he has called us the church. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father God, Abba, how is it that you hold the secret to contentment? That's incredible. I want it. What is it? God, we are hungering and thirsting for you. Come, Lord Jesus. That we gather here because we can taste you just a taste, just a taste. And we can't wait to have a whole meal. We can't wait to have the whole meal with you. So God, we sit here in anticipation. God, may my words be filled with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we, if you're walking in today and you have no clue what's going on, we are doing a series we're calling Embodied Christianity. Embodied Christianity. It's a mouthful. Um, the question for us has been, what do I do with my hands? As Christians, we do a lot of this, an awful lot of this. I guarantee if I sat down with a lot of you, you would be able to tell me all the right things. And you would say, yet this week, I know I blew it in all of these ways with my hands. Either I didn't do something I wanted to do or I did something, as Paul says, I didn't want to do. What do we do with our hands? And we've walked through some things. We've walked through what it is. In, in fact, this has been a surprisingly abstract series. While I wanted to get us to what do we do with our hands, I had to step back and go, actually, we have to think through who we are. Like, who am I? What am I? Why am I? What is my purpose in life? And as we've gotten down to this question of identity, we've been wrestling with this idea that is so foundational to the Christian faith. It seems like the most challenging part of the Christian life is this, accepting your acceptance. Accepting your acceptance. Henry Nouwen is big on this, and he writes this. He says, your true identity is as a child of God. This is the identity you have to accept. 
Once you have claimed it and settled in it, you can live in a world that gives you much joy as well as pain. You can receive the praise as well as the blame that comes to you as an opportunity for strengthening your basic identity. Because the identity that makes you free is anchored beyond all human praise and blame. You belong to God. And it is as a child of God that you are sent into the world. Done. I just walk off. Have a great Sunday. Like that, it, you could just chew on that all day, all week, this month, all year. Make it your job to accept your acceptance. A way we say this in the Christian faith is Jesus died for you. And that's beautiful and it's totally true, but it's only a sliver of the story we live in. If we're going to practice contentment like Jesus, we have to do it through his eyes. We have to inhabit his story and see the world and the world he lived in the way that he saw it. I saw a phrase from Rich Viotas, who's a pastor out in New York, and he says, the he basically said this, the crazy thing about Jesus's baptism is that God tells him, you are my beloved son in whom I am what? Well pleased. We know that line. When does he do this? What is the when of that story? Before he starts his ministry, before he dies on the cross, before he's resurrected, he is well pleased in his son before he has achieved or done anything. That's, that's profound. And on some human level, it makes literally zero sense to us. We're like, no, I'm sorry, that's a nice idea, but now what, like, come on, I've got to do something. What is it that I have to do? Paul talks about this. He says, and this is just a little bit earlier in Philippians 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace, that word means the total health, the total welfare of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It doesn't make sense. That's why it's a peace that transcends our understanding. That's why we have to have faith and trust because this is imparted to us and we go, it doesn't add up. And Jesus says, trust me, trust me, follow me. So what this requires us to do, when you just begin to lift the veil on the story and go, this is the story Jesus inhabited? I'm gonna to have to rethink my whole reality. In this church, we've been talking about the word repent. A well-known pastor in town, John Mark Comer, talks about the word repent. He says, it means to rethink your reality from the ground up. I really like that because that word repent, we use Christian words that become sort of cliche or stale. We begin to not even know what they mean or we've decided what they mean and we need to be challenged. Okay, go and repent to your wife, your husband. Go repent to your parents. 
okay, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Great, that's done, that transaction's over, now I can get on with my life, right? No, to, to repent is to rethink my reality from the ground up. Well, that's a little more major of a thing that I have to do before I come up and say, I'm sorry. I have to not just say, I'm sorry, but I have to be willing and actually beginning to inhabit a story that is different. Because all of our lives are based on a story that we live in, that we are telling ourselves that we are participating as a part of. Everybody lives out a story. In America, we have certain stories that are very commonplace, whether you know you're living them or not. Just test them for a second. We have the story of America as a Christian nation. The pilgrims came as the Puritans to set a standard for Christian morality. They fleed oppression and they set up a Christian nation. And our job is to enforce that morality. That's one story in this country. American liberty was the pilgrims fleeing from the Puritans because they're fleeing oppression and complete pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness is the meaning of life, and anything that stops that is a problem. You see how the two same stories created a very conservative ideal and a very progressive ideal at the same time. People choose which story of the pilgrims coming to America in which to inhabit, and as they live out in that story, they are getting direction from their life. They're setting a goal for themselves. This is the point of life, complete, limitless self-expression. We have another story that's very common. Humanity as the finders of technological progress, as the conquerors over nature. Whatever I do in my story, it's about pursuing technology that will create greater ease, greater comfort, greater good, human rights, all through progress of technology, all through conquering nature. I wanna be a part of that, I wanna move the needle for the next generation. And then we have the very postmodern idea that's prevalent in our society today. A lot of people inhabit this story. There is no master story. Every story is a move for power over you. Life is meaningless. Choose your own path. That is another story that we inhabit. But Jesus didn't live in any of those stories. Sorry to burst your bubble. He lived in a story of the Jewish nation under Yahweh God. And that story is something we have to make an effort. We have to decide to enter into his rest, as I said in the call to worship. We have to make a discipline to enter daily into a new story. Because if we don't do that, we will fall prey to all of the bent and broken aspects of the stories we are living in. If we live out the morality story, we will likely fall to the bent of enforcing the reality on others, telling them whether they're right or wrong, forcing them. If we live the progressive search for liberty, we will give up on justice for certain people in the name of limitless freedom. You see how every story is broken. And so we set the Christian story to a very high bar. Because we believe as Christians, this is not a broken story. That it is possible for one man to live this story out perfectly in righteous justice.
It's like this. Every story we inhabit, including myself, like it or not, is a funhouse mirror version, a, re a reflection of Jesus warped and distorted. And in the center stands the true Jesus. So every story we inhabit, there are parts of it that are recognizable. I see Jesus. That's why I always challenge people, watch movies and think about how you see Jesus in the movie. Every storyline we watch has something from the Christian story, a piece, but a lot of the rest of it's warped in a funhouse mirror. And so we need a better story. We need this better story. And Paul says, I found it. I've got it. I'm living in that better story. In fact, all of his letters as a result of the revelation of the better story on the road where Jesus appears to him in resurrected form and it changes his story. And he says, I've got the better story. I've got the secret, he says, verse 12 of Philippians 4. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. By the way, he's in He's under arrest during the time he's writing this letter. Whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him, through the better story, which gives me strength. That's what he's saying. He's got the better story. So living this better story will allow us to do what Paul is doing in this letter. What is he doing? Who doesn't want the secret of contentment? I mean, come on guys, banner outside today at church, you're gonna get the secret to contentment. I don't know who I'd get walking in, it'd be fun. Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. We get to rejoice fully in the Lord with that better story. Is Elijah here? I'm getting a little feedback. Are you guys getting a little feedback on this speaker? Yeah. Megan, on that right knob next to the light, can you turn it a little bit? Mm -hmm. I don't want distracting. I think to the left. I think to the left, but Elijah's the, the sound guy. Let's see if, tell me if you hear less wine, you guys. Do you hear less, less of it? Okay, good. Sorry about that. He rejoices fully in the Lord. He has the secret to contentment in every circumstance. No community, community. Uh, I'm in actual, I have a disease. I have a chronic disease. Uh, I lost my job. I have the secret to be, oh, I'm unbelievably wealthy, but this person's wealthier. And I want that. I have the secret to contentment. He has the secret to contentment for every circumstance. And it is empowered and strengthened by Jesus. So it is actually, we are companioned in the story. We're never alone in that story. Thank God. What are the building blocks of any story? R rewind the tape, high school, maybe some of you took a high school journalism class or an English class. You had to write the opening paragraph in a newspaper article. I'm dating myself. The opening paragraph in a newspaper article. And what does it have? It has four, four, is it four or five? It has five W's and an H. They are who, what, where, why, when and how. These are the building blocks of a story. This is what you put, right? You never bury your lead. You put the lead right up front and you say, this is the story. Now, if I've caught your attention, you might keep reading, which none of us do, we scroll, right? 
I got those, next, right? I think I can imagine the rest, right? <laughs> another sermon for another day. Who, what, where, why, when, and how? Paul has them. Jesus had them. This series, I was thinking back on it, we have talked about who we are. We've talked about why we are. We've talked about some of these things, what we are. But what we have not talked about much is where and when we are. Where and when are we? Now, the best way to understand where and when the biblical authors were is just to read them. They're actually pretty clear about it. And it will surprise you because the biblical story is happening on two levels simultaneously at all times. They are in ancient, the ancient Near East. They are in the Bronze Age or whatever, right? They are also on earth. Meanwhile, there is a heavenly realm. They are also in a time after the creation of God, by God of humans on earth, but before the return of God to restore their nation. They are, and the creation itself, now this is wild because most of us go, where does the story of the Bible start? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created us. It's all about us, right? We're the beginning. The beginning of the story is us. And like God's before that, but it's really inconsequential because like it's about us. So when in the story are we? That's kind of blew my mind because Paul tells us the when and where of the story and it's not what you think. Where's Paul? He's in a jail in Philippi, right? Or he, or, or sorry, in Rome, he's writing to the Philippians or he's, he's all around the ancient Greece area. And he's writing to these different churches. That's where he is. Nope. He says this in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is in two places at one time, and so are we. We are in Portland. We are also in Earth amidst a cosmic conflict. It's crazy. It's totally crazy. You're like, meh, I could get on board with Christianity like as long as it was kind of just about living a better life here, but like you're getting weird. I'm getting weird because I'm trying to inhabit the, Paul, the story that Paul was inhabiting, which is the story that Jesus inhabited. And it's a massive paradigm shift. Why are we fascinated with horror movies? I'm gonna just for a moment, I'm not, I'm gonna redeem horror movies just for a second, you guys. Why are we fascinated with horror movies? Because there's something true in the funhouse mirror of the horror movie story. There is another reality that we live in. Now, as Westerners, we have recreated our faith to explain away a lot of the supernatural through science, right? That's our technological progress storyline 
trying to meld with the Jesus storyline. And we've tried to reinterpret and reinvent the story to get rid of the weird stuff. I'm not endorsing, you all go watch horror movies, but the times that I have seen a horror story, I've gone, oh, I, oh, I, get, I get the fascination. Because there is a story. What, what does Jesus cast out? Demons. You could say they're just schizophrenics. I've heard that, right? But there's narratives happening in those stories. The demons are talking to Jesus as a spiritual presence from a spiritual realm. I don't think Jesus would say they're just schizophrenics. I think the story would have been written differently if that was the case. Go, re go read them. Paul is saying we inhabit a storyline in a cosmic conflict. It is a paradigm shift. It changes the way we see everything. And to have the secret to contentment, we need to be living in the proper story. A story that is full of this supernatural conflict. Now, in some ways, this is incredible. My struggle, he says, we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Thank you, somebody, for finally saying that the world is messed up, super messed up, and that it's not only because of humans. I, I sat here last night wrestling with Megan and I go, I, I gotta figure out why tsunamis happen before I can stand up here and tell everybody because I can't, like, the, the, the material aspect of the world has been changed by people, by beings rebelling against God before creation, created perfect world. Who's there in the garden? Serpent. Invading the world, seeding the rebellion, which we gladly take, and then the world begins to fall apart around us. It's like scenes in Inception, where just like suddenly in the dream world, all the buildings are falling down. It's like that is what starts to happen in slow motion in the Garden of Eden. My struggle is not against flesh, but it's my struggle against overeating because of loneliness. Maybe a little bit about loneliness but it's about something deeper. There's some deeper power at play there that's gaining ground. My struggle of starving myself for the sake of body image isn't just a struggle against flesh and blood. There's something deeper there going on. Nod your head, there is something there. You go, yeah, there is something there. My struggle against selfish sexual impulses about consuming other people isn't just against flesh and blood. There's something deeper there that I'm rebelling against and who I am siding with. My struggle to want the house or the car my neighbor has or the job or the family they have or the school their kids go to isn't just against flesh and blood. You get the point. Paul says there's a bigger story. There's a story between the seen and the unseen. The, the biblical writers talk about God. He is the unseen God. There is the unseen realm. This is where our faith and trust are really tried because we go, yes, I want to believe God. Help me believe. I am a, I'm a product of the Western American worldview. I'm struggling. I lost you. I lost you at cosmic conflict. The word cosmos, I lost you. Because that's a woo-woo-y word, right? Used by New Agers. And I lost you. 
Where are we? We are in Portland in the midst of a cosmic conflict that began before creation will continue sometime in the future. Just like full stop. That's where we are in the story and when we are in the story. Now, what do we do with this? This is the problem. What do we do with this? We make either way too much of this or way too little of it. We either negate it for the sake of our own sanity and being able to just like live with our faith or we become totally over infatuated with it. Some of us never watch a horror movie. Some of us can't stop watching horror movies. That, that's, that's the way we deal with this conflict. In the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis writes a satire. Who, who in here has read screw tape letters? A few people? Okay. And he writes it from the point of view of like a demon master writing to his little demon student, right? And so the whole thing's wacky, it's fun to read. It's really thoughtful. But in the, in the early part of the book, he writes this, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist or the magician with the same delight. Kevin Spacey and the usual suspect says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. So, we've talked about how those manifest. You, you might come from a tradition where the phrase, I'm just really under attack right now, falls out of your mouth, right? That's a spiritual warfare entrenched tradition, you say. And, and we sometimes, eh, might be true. Other times, over infatuation, you're playing the victim, you're trying to get out, you're saying, man, I just didn't get here, the traffic was really bad, I was just under attack, man, traffic was just rough. Devil didn't want me to get to church this morning, right? <laughs> Sorry, should have left five minutes earlier, sounds like lack of discipline, traffic's like this every morning, right? It can go both ways. But it is impossible to paint a complete picture of the cosmic conflict in the Bible without standing in that balance, in that tension, and living in there, sorting that out. The Bible, I'll just do a quick, a very quick survey because you could do two or three part sermon just to explore the cosmic conflict in the Bible. You could do a series, uh, when I was a kid, like, I grew up Adventist. They did full-on end-of-the-world seminars for a week you would come and learn this stuff, right? But the Bible talks about the cosmic world, and sometimes we just miss it. In Jude chapter 1, verse 6, the Bible talks about angels. But when I think of an angel, I think of a guardian angel, a, a messenger to somebody in Israel or to Mary. You know, I think of all the angels praising God. They're all good angels. But the Bible talks about bad angels. Angels that have fallen is how, they, is how we term it. Jude 1 verse 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. That in the cosmic world, there was rebellion against a good God before our time and continuing during our time. It's not like this just like happened and now we're the, where the, yes, we're where the scene plays out that we can see, but isn't it crazy to realize that there is a larger 
cosmic conflict. And then this evil does not just make an appearance in humans alone, but there is actually thin places in the Bible where the two intersect. We hear in the Bible about cherubim or seraphim and visions. These are often the good angels or beings, spiritual beings that are praising God. But we also hear about the fallen ones. An example would be from Genesis 6-4, one of the weirdest passages in the Bible that reads this, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were heroes of old men of renown. What is going on? There is an interplay, there is an interplay between the spiritual reality and our reality. Of course there is. Paul finds strength in God the supreme spiritual being. We believe in the interplay, but we like to believe in only one side of it most of the time. And then intellectualize or to make materialistic the other side. In Exodus, Pharaoh and his magicians, as Moses walks up to throw down, right? He's got the throw down between Pharaoh's uh, prophets, we could say, his magicians, his wise men, his spiritual leaders, and Moses. I've heard it explained that this was just sleight of hand. They could turn things into things. I don't think that's the way the story's playing out. Because if you read the Old Testament storyline, you see that over and over, Yahweh is presented as what? The Lord of hosts is a term that's used a lot, Lord of hosts. He is in the Hebrew, Elohim of Elohim. Elohim is not his proper name. His proper name is Yahweh. The Israelites called him Yahweh God, right? But Elohim was a word for gods, just general gods. There is a cast of characters and he is the God of gods. That's what makes Israel distinct from all of the other ancient Near East cultures, is that they all believed in these spiritual beings that were involved in creation stories and all this stuff. And Israel had the audacity, right, in the eyes of all the surrounding cultures to say, we have one God over all of God's. Now, we tend to think they said there is only one God, but the way it's phrased is we have the Lord of hosts. So the story then of Moses coming into Pharaoh is not about there's no other gods and we have a God. It is our God can beat your God. And when you read the story and you see the Egyptians had all of these, we know about the Egyptian culture and how they worshiped. But we go, they're just made up images to a bunch of, you know, like don't invest in that. You might go down a bad path. We're freaked out about it. We're freaked out because we've combined our narratives when we live in the biblical story, we can live within a cosmic conflict knowing that we have Elohim of Elohim. We have the Lord of hosts, the God that is triumphant over all others. This plays out throughout the Old Testament and then you see it with Jesus because honestly, you could give me the whole Old Testament and make a case for me and I would say, great, but I'm not Jewish. It only makes a difference for me when it comes out of Jesus's mouth and then coincides with the Old Testament or fulfills the Old Testament. Otherwise I'm Jewish, right? So 
I have to then take my hypothesis and go, how does Jesus live out that story? He lives out that story right away. What happens right after you are my beloved and who I'm well pleased? Pop out, spirit leads him out into the desert. Who does he face? He faces what we call the Satan. We just call him Satan, we like proper names. But in the Bible, he's called the Satan, the adversary. He faces the adversary, the spiritual force of evil that has been destroying the earth since Adam. Jesus believed in where he was and when he was in the same way that Paul does and in the same way that we should. In Ephesus, so when Paul writes in Ephesians 6, he's writing to the church of Ephesus. He's writing to a people who totally get this world. In Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus, and it says, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over them who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. It calls these people seven sons of Sceva. A Jewish chief priest were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. The church of Ephesus gets the storyline that Paul's talking about. But even they are in a world where that storyline is under assault in the ancient Near East, in Greece, in that time, there was people going, oh, we have different philosophies of life. In fact, and this, is, this was like the precursor to what we have now, right? They, there were people called Epicureans. They believed that the gods existed, but they don't care about us anymore. They're just totally uninvolved, which was like the precursor to saying all of that woo-woo-wee stuff, this does, no, they're gone. They don't care about us. It's only what you can see that matters. So don't, like, we can't explain away this by saying it was just a cultural idea at the time, and Paul was lived in a culture where everybody thought this, so he wrote this way. That's how we, we do it sometimes. No, Paul lived in a culture where this was already under assault. The idea of a god or spiritual forces was already under assault. Why, why am I going into this? Okay, John, fine, you convinced me or you didn't convince me. Like, I don't get why living in this storyline matters. Because if we negate this story, which I think is, if I just had to read on my congregation, I would say the tendency we have is to negate the story too much. We are falling in to one of the lies that the father of lies has given us. If we want the secret of contentment we need to have a God that is just not, not just God, but the God of all things, over all things, over anything that comes up that we say, I don't get that. The Bible didn't tell me about that. That freaks me out. Ouija boards freaks me out. That was, I'm a, I'm a millennial kid of the 90s. Dungeons and Dragons, that freaks me out. Get rid of it. Harry Potter, get rid of it, right? Like, I'm afraid of that. Why? Why are you afraid of it? Your God is the Lord of hosts. He's victorious. He is the conqueror. He is the one that will win. You are people then of hope. 
And part of the way that we become people of hope is that we now do not just flee from any sense because we're so afraid of evil because it might get us, but we can face evil and we can say, bring it on, bring it on. I have the secret to contentment, father of lies, which is what Jesus does in the temptation, right? He goes, here we are. Doesn't kick and run. He doesn't go, my mom told me to be really scared of you and have nothing to do with you. I'm out, right? He goes, I know you. I've been taught about you since I was a boy because this is how the Jews do things. You don't surprise me. Bring it on. I got scripture. You're going to distort it. I'm going to correct it. We're going to go back and forth, back and forth. I'm going to win. He understands the character of evil. And if we are going to live in the storyline of the Bible, and we are going to live day to day with all of the things that happen in our mind. You wake up, okay, explain this one. You wake up from a real weird dream, and you go, I am in a funk this morning, right? You can say, I understand the character of evil. You don't have to say, I'm under attack this morning. But you can say, uh, last night was great. This morning is gonna be great. I'm carrying the nature of evil into this morning unless I can see it, name it, and face it, and overcome it through Christ who strengthens me. Just a, just a glimpse of why living in this story matters. And we learn about the character of God all day long in the church, I hope. And we know that we are sent ones that are sent out into a world full of good and bad. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 16, we need to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. We got the gentle thing, right? We duck, we walk on eggshells around people. We're just real quiet and sweet. The wisest serpent things, a lot of us don't have that. Day because we're afraid. In John chapter eight, Jesus has one of his longest uh, John writes one of the longest passages about the devil, about the adversary. The, I can't explain the whole story. Go read John 8 if you have a chance. I'm going to summarize it. Jesus is having one, another one of those uh, confrontations with the Pharisees. And he's got his disciples with him. So he says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, my storyline, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. A good reason to adopt Jesus' storyline. The Pharisees don't adopt Jesus' storyline. They say, we are not illegitimate children. Imagine them saying it like this. We're not bastards like you. Mary had you out of wedlock because they don't adopt Jesus' storyline, remember? So Jesus isn't anything special. He's a bastard son of a young girl that was a Jew. And he has no business teaching anyone about anything. He says, the only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, and this is just like, come on. If God were your father, you would love me for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable 
to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, the accuser. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. Study the character of Satan, not because you want to be like him, not because you think it's cool, not because you want a cool tattoo, because you need to know how to face him down. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me, Jesus says to the Pharisees. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Here's the deal. When Satan whispers in our ear, he doesn't go, I got a really good lie for you. When Satan whispers in our ear, we think it's God because we don't understand the character. So we go, I'm really afraid. And sometimes God, you know, puts that thing in your heart where you just don't want to touch that. You don't want to go there. You, I'm nervous. And I just want to wait until I have complete and total peace. Right? Maybe you're afraid because you're not listening to God. Maybe you're afraid, there is no fear in love. Maybe you're afraid because you want something out of this that's a carrot dangling in front of you from the accuser himself. Maybe you're ashamed and insecure of how you look or the kind of job you have or how to have a conversation at a fourth, like at a, at a barbecue because the devil has accused you that you're not good enough. And so once we understand that he's the accuser, when we hear an accusation in our mind, we can do as Paul says and take captive those thoughts because we have the power of Jesus, the king, the victor, the father against Satan's character, the accuser, the rebel who is baseless, who is a liar and a deceiver. Here is one way that the devil commonly warps our contentment in our culture. Uh, the, the, the word for contentment that's used is really a weird word in this passage. It basically means self-sufficiency. So let's, let's reread verse 11 in Philippians 4. I am not saying this because I am need, for I have learned to be self-sufficient, whatever the circumstances. But then Paul goes and literally like negates everything he just says by saying, I can do everything through somebody else through Jesus who gives me strength. I have become self-sufficient by becoming totally dependent. I have become capable because I have accepted my acceptance. I have learned the secret of contentment because it's not mine to go and find. I have it already. This is where the Christian story does intersect with some of the other stories of the funhouse mirror of our world. Buddhism is about finding contentment in what is. Right? There are other stories who have reflections of the story. But the Christian story says, no, there is a spiritual being who explains the story that we can see from the unseen. And he loves you. And he accepts you. And out of that acceptance, he will strengthen you to face literally the hardest things in your life. And he won't just allow you to see them. He will... He will ask you to take point and you will lead the charge. You will be empowered to lead the charge so that other people can grow in their strength of this storyline. The reason that we use so many stories 
and illustrations in sermons of actual history. It's because we need to see the Martin Luther King Juniors, the Mother Teresas. We need to see these people who actually had the faith to live out this story and show us that it's true. When Jesus convicts us, so here's, here's like a, just a quick study of the fine knife's line between, is it the devil? Is it the adversary? Is it the accuser? Is it Christ? Conviction, the word conviction. I watch them, I'm very like sensitive with movies. I watch a movie and suddenly I'm like, they're talking about me, right? I, I'm like that dad. Like, you know, like, like I'm looking around, like what? Oh my gosh, and my heart's beating. I'm feeling convicted, right? Now, sometimes I am feeling convicted. If it brings me to a place of wholeness, hope, joy, release, I need to share that. Sometimes I'm being accused. You are horrible. That's you. Look at what you've done. You see how the same thing can come down and based on who we're listening to, it can turn into either thing. And it's based on the story we live in. So just to, to depart out of this idea of a new story. We need to know one more thing, and we need to know it from the Bible, because that's what we trust, about how this story ends. The Christian story has an ending. We can't learn everything about it, but the book of Revelation gives us a vision. John has a vision that in some way paints a picture for the most broad strokes of that ending. And in that ending, we see in Revelation 19, I'm actually gonna read this short passage here and then we'll close out. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, is like the final, final part of the cosmic conflict shown to us in Revelation. This is an image, a highly poetic, prophetic image. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. That's, that's a lot. We spend our whole life trying to know his name and only he knows it himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The Logos. The meaning behind meaning. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. Remember this, murder, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a direct connection to Elohim of Elohim. The story has an arc. It's cohesive. It makes sense. That's what's so crazy about the world. When you start to really read the Bible, it starts to come together. Now, what is that blood? I, I'm not going to study this passage, but what is the blood that his robe is dipped in? This is a great question. What is the blood? This is showing us the crucified Jesus. 
The triumph of Jesus. Now, get if you get nothing else, get this because this is key to how the storyline is one. Revelation shows us a storyline in which the salvation of the earth comes through the death for neighbor, the love of neighbor, God's love for humanity. And in that, we can rejoice and yet also offer ourselves as a sacrifice because the story is so much bigger than us. Our church is in a time where our best weapon against the forces of evil is to do what Paul did and rejoice greatly in the Lord and pray for peace and contentment. And then don't wait for it, but practice it. Because as soon as you have prayed for something, you have it. So when I pray, Lord, give me peace, Jesus is literally saying, practice peace. Like it will backfill. If you come out and you practice peace, I will bring it in behind you. Enter my rest. Don't wait till you feel restful. Enter my rest. Say, I'm a workaholic. Friday night to Saturday night, my phone goes off. I'm choosing to enter your rest. This is a discipline. The rest won't come right away. I'll be in what we call work mind for the first two months of this whole thing. But after two months, your rest will enter. And so we experience as Christians this sort of inversion, this upside down kingdom where things are not as they seem. And we have to pray these kinds of prayers. And I'm going to close with this. Pray with me. God, I accept your acceptance. Help me to accept your acceptance. God, I am faithful to your faithfulness. Help me to be faithful to your faithfulness. God, I trust you, but help me to trust you. God, I I live like Jesus. Help me to live like Jesus. God, I hope. Help me to hope. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.